0: As we jump back into our series through the Gospel of John this morning, we kind of find ourselves kind of like a person who's sitting at a family gathering and they're in the middle of a long table. And maybe you're hearing conversations from one end of the table and then a little bit from the other end and one across the table. You might have some relatives on the right and some relatives on the left politically and some that are just a little off, and you're hearing all these conversations, and they have all kinds of questions, and today we're going to hear some questions concerning Jesus from a lot of different groups. In John 7, we hear the questions and conversations coming from Jesus during a feast that was taking place in Jerusalem and there were three primary questions that these groups and these people were asking where does Jesus come from where does Jesus or where does Jesus teaching come from where does Jesus himself come from and where does Jesus say he is going and the passage is filled with irony because we as the readers We already know the answers to these questions because John told us at the very beginning of his gospel. He says Jesus came from heaven. His teaching is from heaven. He's going back to heaven. So we know where these questions are leading, but the people in the story did not yet know all of these things. And so we hear and we have an understanding that they did not have. And so it's filled with a bit of Irony. And this was far, the the things that we know about Jesus were far from obvious to the people who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And while their questions might not be the same questions that we would ask or that our culture and context might ask today, I think we may hear a familiar ring in what they were grappling with. After all, if Jesus really is from heaven, if his teaching is from heaven, if he's gone back to heaven, then that would have some pretty big implications for our lives and how we think about and view the world. Not only that, but it would seem to demand something of us. And each of these groups seemed to have slightly different trouble with identifying who Jesus was and where his teaching came from. And just like the groups in first century Jerusalem, there are people today who respond in a variety of ways to Jesus. Some express mild curiosity Some people resist the message of Jesus, some are angry and they call him and those who follow him liars, and some believe in him. But I think most of us would like to know how we can make sense of what Jesus claims in the gospel as he teaches. With so many thoughts and opinions and judgments about Jesus, how do we determine which judgments are correct? Most of us here have already responded to Jesus in some way, with a level of faith, but there is still something for us to learn here about what it means to believe in Jesus. And I'll remind you that this is what John's gospel is all about. He says so himself at John 2031, that he wrote this gospel so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. But why do so many people come to such different conclusions about Jesus, and how can I be sure that I've responded correctly? That's what John 7 addresses through the questions swirling around Jesus while he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. And we're going to start out with Jesus' own answer to these questions this morning. It came on the last day, the great day of the feast, as it was known, and we need a little context to understand what Jesus claims about himself. The Feast of Booths was an annual festival of the Jews, not only celebrating the autumn harvest of fruit, but also commemorating the period in Israel's life, the the history of the nation, when they wandered in the desert following their, their freedom from slavery in Egypt. During that period, they were forced to live in tents and temporary shelters. And so during the Feast of Booths, people would travel to Jerusalem, and they would set up temporary shelters all over the countryside surrounding Jerusalem. And these shelters would be made mostly of branches from trees and and palm fronds. And those who lived in Jerusalem would set these, these temporary shelters up on the roofs of their homes. And for seven days, they would live in these huts celebrating God's provision, remembering their time in the wilderness after God led them out of slavery in Egypt. And we tend to think of the Passover as the most important and the most significant feast, but historically we know that the most people came to Jerusalem for the feast Of booths, It was the biggest feast in the calendar of Jewish festivals. More Jews traveled back to Jerusalem for that than any other festival. And throughout the course of the week, there would be all kinds of celebrations and singing and sacrifices that would be made in the temple. And one of those celebrations involved water. You see, this feast occurred toward the end of the dry season. And in Israel, the dry season is very dry. There are long stretches without rain. Streams dry up and the ground is dusty. So part of this feast was thanking God for the harvest... But part of it was praying to God that he would again supply rain so that there could be another harvest during the next season and that they would be blessed with provision and abundance. And every day of this feast, a procession would be made of priests and celebrants or Jews who'd come up to worship from the temple and they would go down toward the the spring of Gihon where that fed the Siloam Pool in Jerusalem. And there when they got to the spring a priest would take a golden pitcher and he would fill that pitcher with water and then he would lead that procession back up to the temple. And as they approached the temple, the procession would begin to sing the psalms, particularly Psalm 113 to 118. And when the procession arrived back at the temple, the priest would walk up the stairs to the altar that was in the courtyard and he would pour out that water on top of that altar. Then... On the seventh day of the feast, that procession took place seven times. So it was known as the great day of the feast. And the imagery of the water was not only a prayer for literal rain, but it was a remembrance of when God provided water from a rock during the wilderness journey and a prayer for salvation and the Holy Spirit. It's reminiscent of prophecies like Isaiah 12.3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or Zechariah 14.8, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And Joel 3.18 and in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and, the wa- and water the valley of Shittim, and a lot of other scriptures that were used that use this this imagery of water to describe abundance of God's salvation and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's in this context. Where everyone is aware of these water offerings and the hope that they express for abundance and salvation and the Messiah and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and he cries out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to drink me, to drink me. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of this heart will flow rivers of living water. And imagine that when Jesus stood up in that context, everyone was a little bit taken aback. A little surprised that this guy, who's not supposed to be part of this procession, he's not part of the regular service, has now stood up to make such a bold claim in the middle of it all. And then they began to rehash all of their questions about who Jesus was. It says in John seven forty to 44 when they heard these words... Jesus' claim stirred up division and some wanted to get rid of Jesus altogether. And the offer Jesus made still creates all kinds of questions and stirs up a lot of different reactions today. Think about the claim Jesus was making by saying that you can come to him and drink. He's claiming to be the source of living water, that is, the source of of salvation, of satisfaction, of the meaning and purpose of life. He's claiming to be the source of relationship with God. And John helps us interpret Jesus' claims in verse 39. It says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not, yet, had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's how to understand this. Jesus claims to be the source of life because he can give direct connection to the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And in order to get that, in order to have salvation or meaning or the presence of God or life, you must come to Jesus. But there are a lot of barriers that keep people from coming to Jesus for living water. And that's what this passage is about. It's about the things that would keep us away from the living water. The people then had questions, and our questions may differ slightly, but I think that the heart of these barriers largely remains the same. What are the barriers that keep people from living water? And so today I want to warn you, beware of barriers to the living water. And right off the bat, it's good for us to recognize how this passage hits us, even if we call ourselves Christians because we might think, well, that living water, that's for when you first come to Jesus. I don't think that that's just it. The passage starts with Jesus in Galilee just before the Feast of Booths. Chapter 5 records how he had healed a man on the Sabbath and this, the controversy that this caused had erupted and, and religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. He had been away from Jerusalem for months now. He had been staying off the radar screen for a while. But with the biggest feast of the year approaching, Jesus' brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, they suggested that he go to Jerusalem and reveal himself there. Now they said this cynically, they didn't really believe in him, but if he was trying to gain some kind of big following, if he thought himself, fancied himself a prophet, then surely the Feast of Booths, the largest gathering of Jews during the year, was the place to announce his intentions. But was that Jesus' primary goal? He responded to his brother's requests in verses 6 to 8 by saying, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. It's obvious from what we've already read that Jesus did end up going to the feast. He wasn't lying to his brothers. Rather, he wasn't going up when and how they suggested he go. He wasn't going up for the reasons they said he should go up. And when Jesus did go up to the feast and there was a buzz about his teachings and the signs that he had done, many people were still hesitant because they thought they knew him. Some of those who were living in Jerusalem said, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They thought the Messiah would burst onto the scene suddenly and dramatically, not like Christ who had been traveling for a couple of years now and preaching, and they knew where he was from. And again, later in the passage, they assumed they knew that Jesus was from Galilee, but that the Christ would come from Bethlehem. And the irony is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They just didn't know it. And that irony serves to warn us of the first barrier to receiving living water. You have to recognize pride that comes from familiarity. I'm sure you've heard the aphorism, familiarity breeds contempt. That's true. And sometimes it's true for Christians and our relationship with Jesus. You can grow comfortable with what's holy and the sacred, You can become familiar with the forms of religion and with the order of service and with the way that the prayer sounds and the way that the people sitting next to you respond and you can even grow comfortable with the seat that you usually choose and the people that sit around you. You can think as a result that it's all so familiar that you've seen it all and you've heard it all before and you know exactly what to expect. Have you ever experienced this? You've been driving down the road, maybe on a long stretch of straight highway, and you're going along, and your thoughts dripped off, and suddenly you kind of snap to, and you're 10 or 20 miles further down the road than the last time you remember, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what just happened? Thank God I'm still alive. Anybody have that experience? I've driven through the Midwest enough to have that experience multiple times as I was going to college and things. And, and this is a little bit of what happens when we grow familiar or comfortable with Jesus and the things of God. We think this is a boring stretch of road. I've seen this all before. I've experienced this many, many times. And Christians, we do this with our lives. We've heard it all before. The songs are familiar. We know we've been told to read the Bible and pray so many times so that we can grow. Your your familiarity can then subtly begin to turn a corner and it leads to pride. We start to think of Christianity as something that we can examine from the outside rather than an active faith in Christ and a relationship with Him through the Holy Spirit and His Word. Where you were once actively seeking Jesus, now you just criticize others. Where there was once fire, now there's just empty forms. Or maybe for you, there never was any fire. Maybe you were brought up in it, and for you, church was kind of like a family event without any real power, and you've kind of chosen to allow the vestiges of of that family experience to linger in your life, and so you still come once in a while. You give some small place to it, but you're not really interested in an active relationship with God in which he's like living water that supplies your needs and directs your life, and your familiarity has led you to a pride to think, it's good enough that I just kind of Up Once in a while, today Jesus says to you, if you're thirsty, if you're tired of life as usual, you're tired of chasing things that don't satisfy, if you're tired of the familiarity and the pride that has been bred out of it, if you're tired of a boring Christian life, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In addition to the pride that comes from familiarity, another barrier to to living water is harboring mixed motives. And I think that this is really the heart of the passage. And to overcome this barrier, you need to identify and surrender those mixed motives. While people were wondering when Jesus would show up to this feast, if he would come, when he'd start teaching again, it wasn't until about the middle of the feast that Jesus went up into the temple and he began to teach. And when he did, the Jewish leaders, likely the Pharisees and the priests, began to question where his teaching came from. It says in verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? The religious leaders knew that Jesus had never studied under one of the rabbis, and therefore his authority to teach wasn't recognized. And Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? How can we assess Jesus' teaching? Where does it come from? How can we know? Those are the questions that the people were asking then, and they're questions people still ask today. Maybe you're not a Christian, but some of Jesus' teachings interest you. But you also know that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Savior of the world. And Christians say he was raised from the dead. How can you assess this claim that Jesus gives living water? Or perhaps you're a new believer and you've expressed faith in Christ, but your lifestyle, you know, doesn't really fit with what the Scripture teaches. But how do you know if it's really necessary to change that lifestyle? Won't Jesus just accept you just like you are? You, you may have been a believer for many years, and your spiritual life is kind of on cruise control, pretty comfortable, and you're wondering if there is more, but you're unsure how you get there. And even after all these years, some of the teachings of Jesus still seem very difficult to you, and you're not sure you could follow through even if you wanted to. How can we assess the value of Jesus' teachings for our lives if they're true and if they're worth actually living out and following in complete obedience? Of course, there are many great sources of evidence Not only for the existence of God, but for the truth of Jesus' claims. There are philosophical arguments and manuscript evidence of the Bible's faithful transmission. There are moral arguments and arguments from conscience and evidence from creation and fulfilled prophecy and the testimony of Christians throughout history and the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But even with all of this evidence that you can present to people, there is still a barrier to living water that cannot be overcome just by evidence. Jesus describes those who get beyond this barrier in verse 17. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, my teaching, Jesus' teaching, is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And that sounds circular at first. It feels like it's begging the question, but I don't think that it is. Jesus is pointing out that there is a moral dimension to receiving him. It's not just evidence. Faith is required, And Jesus' point was not that you must attain some, some level of moral achievement in order to recognize that his teachings come from God. Rather, there must be a foundational commitment to knowing and doing God's will before you'll be able to recognize Jesus' teachings. You have to at least be committed to the idea that if there is a God and that, 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 you, that you want to know what he thinks... That you believe understanding his ways would be important and you want to do his will. But didn't everyone who was hearing Jesus already believe that? Isn't that what the Jews were all about? They followed God's law after all. They were committed to doing God's will, right? Actually, they weren't. As Jesus pointed out in verse 19, God's will was revealed in the law, yet they did not keep the law. Fastidious as they were about various elements and about their own traditions, their failure to keep the law together with their insistence that they were keeping the law was a clear indication that their desire was not to do God's will, but was actually to do their own will. And the fact that they sought to kill Jesus was the height of their failure to keep God's law. What reason did they have for committing murder other than preserving their own religious empire? And at a deeper level, by killing Jesus, they would kill the one Moses himself said would come. They would kill the very fulfillment of the law they claimed to keep. But most of us are not Jewish, so what's this got to do with us don't we do the very same things? We claim to be good people. We talk about the need for love and kindness. We give to charities and the church once in a while, but I think for many people, there is a nagging suspicion that what they are doing is merely covering over a lack of living water in their lives that what they have is little more than the same moralism so that they can prop up their own internal feelings just like the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were doing with Jesus. They're not living because they have living water. They're, they're, They're not living out of the stream that flows from the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're aware that they are missing something deep and fundamental, but they don't want to admit it. You are enough. We keep telling each other on commercials and t-shirts, but as Shakespeare put it, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Or as Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, 21 to 22, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be enough, they became fools fools. And so people suppress the truth that they can see about God. In other words, they aren't committed. They're not really committed to doing what God wants. But that's the precondition of recognizing Jesus. It's not that you have to attain a certain level of works or even be able to do all that God wants, even if you knew what it was. It's not that you can say, I am morally good enough and I have the willpower to do what God wants. But if you aren't able to do it, you must at least admit it. Admit that you're a hypocrite. Admit that though you see what he wants, you're unable to do what he wants. That's repentance. It's totally relying on God and not on yourself. It's recognizing that he is good, even if you can't live up to his standards, rather than trying to bend the standards so that you don't look so bad. But instead of seeking the glory and will of God, people are much much more inclined to seeking the glory that comes from other people. The Jewish leaders did this. John 5:44 says, "How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God?" Notice that this verse from John 5 says the same thing as our passage. You can't believe not because there isn't evidence but because your pre-commitment is not to the glory of God, but to the glory that comes from other people. And we can all relate to this. We all know what it's like to go looking for the approval of others. We've all experienced the pressure to try and fit in so that we're accepted or to try and stand out so that we'll be noticed by others. You've probably said things that you shouldn't have or that you don't really believe at some point in order to get the approval of other people. You've probably failed to speak up when you should have because you didn't want others to disapprove. You've remained comfortable when you should have stood up for what's right or gone out of your way to serve others because you didn't want to rock the boat. Almost everyone, in fact, I'm probably pretty certain in saying everyone at some point is guilty of seeking glory from other people rather than seeking glory from God. Even Christians do this sometimes. And Christians can be especially guilty of trying to protect ourselves with religion. It's easy to look at the Jewish leaders and how they claimed to know the law but only kept the parts that suited them, and that sounds terrible. Until perhaps we realize that we may be participants in something similar. Might we sometimes use portions of God's word or a little of God's will together with our own traditions or desires to actually keep God's will at bay? We use Jesus like a brand to put on ourselves, to affirm us, rather than actually submitting to what he wants. We're really willing to do this, to use the Scripture to support our political ideologies, but I sometimes wonder if we're blinded to the way those ideologies don't always live up to the Word of God. Might we sometimes use Scripture outside of context to bolster our own desires and push back on what God actually wants to do? Is it possible that we would sometimes say things like, God wants us to be hard workers as a way of refusing to help someone in need because we feel we've assessed that they don't meet up to our standards of hard work? Might we sometimes question someone's character as a way of maintaining our own standing in the community? Are our motives in leadership or at church sometimes mixed between a desire to glorify God and our desire to receive glory from other people? And when we come to the Word of God with everything figured out and all of our systems in place and some assurance that our way is the best way, the right way, it's the only way, then we may actually be unable to discern the will of God because of our prior commitments, not to Him but to our own will. Think of people who would excuse adultery because it must be God's will for them to be happy. Think of someone who would refuse to help another person in need if that person's life isn't first cleaned up to his satisfaction. And when we approach life with commitments to our own positions rather than a commitment to the will of God, we miss Jesus' teaching because Jesus' teaching is the will of God. We can't understand it. We can't do it because our commitment is to protecting ourselves and not to humbling ourselves and doing God's will. And Jesus confronts our contemporary ideas about ourselves because most people think that they approach life and they approach God and they are neutral and then their decisions can help them lean toward good and lean toward God. But Jesus points out that the reason the Jews... And the reason we can't know whether his teaching is true and follow it isn't because it's hard to figure out, but because we actually aren't neutral observers. We're bent away from him. Remember John 1, 9 to 10? The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The light shined in the darkness. The darkness was not bent toward the light. It was bent away from the light. And Jesus here confronts the hearts of people who are not neutral toward God. They are bent away toward God. And he's saying to them, you cannot understand what I'm saying because you assume your heart is bent toward God. But it's not It is bent away from God. And as long as your pre-commitments are to you and to protecting yourself, to protecting your will, to protecting your own desires, to protecting your own dreams, your own wants, your own visions, as long as your commitment that you come to God with is, God, I love you. As long as you do things my way, you'll never be able to understand my teachings. And that's not circular reasoning. That's Jesus claiming to be God himself and saying, you can't understand what I'm saying because you're bent away from God And I'm here, and I am God. And so many times in our lives, even as believers, what we do is we come to Jesus with an attitude of humility, or not with an attitude of pride, and we come and we want Jesus to rubber stamp our desires, our dreams, our goals, our direction. The word Jesus uses is our will. And we seek glory from one another, Rather than coming to God and saying, God, I've read your word, and I've become awfully convinced that in my own strength, I will never be able to do this, and I don't have a lot to offer you. In fact, I've got nothing to offer you because I've been bent away from you and running away from you, and sometimes, Jesus, even as a Christian, my heart gets bent out of the way that it should be going. And I can't come to you in pride and say I've got something to offer you, but I confess, I confess that my motives toward you have been mixed, that I've sought my own glory, that I've wanted my own way, and I've not been able to hear your word because I've been too busy with my own preconceived notions of my own self and my own glory. And that keeps us from hearing what Jesus actually wants to do, Or to use the language of Jesus himself, it keeps us from living water. But how much should we thirst for living water? It is not insignificant that Jesus begins this bold proclamation If anyone thirsts, what is the precondition to coming to God and receiving living water? You've got to be thirsty and you've got to know you're thirsty. This is what he's saying. He's saying you've got to understand that that you're thirsty for something and that you don't have the means of satisfying that thirst. That all your preconceived notions about who God is and what you'd like him to do and how you'd like him to rubber stamp your plans, that those will not satisfy. And so rather than coming and saying, God, I think I've got this figured out. If you could just rubber stamp this, if you could just put your approval on this, I'm going to binge your law a little bit. I'll keep this part and I'll ignore this other part and I'll judge other people so that others won't notice that, that I'm really messed up myself. And rather than coming to God with that mess, you come to him and say, God, I am a mess. I need you to fix me. I need you to heal me. I need living water, I need a direct access to your Holy Spirit, I need you to cleanse me, I need you to make me right with you. And even we as believers, if we are not careful, grow so familiar with the things of Christianity that pretty soon we're clogged up and there are all kinds of barriers to the access of living water that we should have. But what do we do when we get to that point? We bring all of our mixed emotions and all of our mixed motives to Jesus And we say, Jesus, I can do nothing about these. I need you to cleanse me. And today I surrender everything to you. What is it that you're holding back from Jesus? That question gets asked a lot in churches, I understand. But what Jesus is saying here is that if your pre-commitment is Jesus and or God and, you have a mixed motive that will keep you from living water. If you're saying God I'll do your will but I'm not leaving my job. God, I will do your will but I'm staying in this relationship. God, I want to do your will but you know my family will be really mad at me so I'm just kind of going to do it sort of halfway. God, I'm willing to do your will but don't call me to leave my city to go someplace else to share the good news of Jesus. God, I'm going to do your will, but don't call me out of my comfort zone. If we have that kind of motivation and we come to God with that, we're cut off from the living water. Because the precondition to receiving living water isn't that you attain some kind of high moral standard. It's that you would say, God, I don't know if I have the strength to do these things. I'm afraid of leaving. I'm afraid of the repercussions. I'm afraid of people. But, but God, I, I, I'm coming to you because I know that these mixed motivations don't satisfy, and I need real living water. And the last barrier to living water that Jesus brings up, or that the passage brings up, and that I want to warn you of today as we get ready to respond, is fear. Fear is a powerful motivator for people, and I think we often have things in our lives that we're afraid of and we don't realize it. We see this motivation in John seven forty-five to 52, where it says, the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and, uh, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? They'd been sent to arrest Jesus after he made this bold claim. And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The the Pharisees and priests basically called the officers of Nicodemus ignorant fools. And that doesn't seem like a big deal, but I actually think that we all have experiences where we felt humiliated about something. And we've said to ourselves in that moment, Never again. I'm never going to be in that position again and we work really hard not to be in positions where we feel humiliated i recognized this in myself recently i was playing a game it was a game i assumed i should be good at and i made some obvious mistakes and got frustrated and angry i'm rather competitive it's not always one of my better traits and i had to reflect later on why i had gotten easily angered over a stupid game why I was so angry and I realized it was because I didn't want to appear foolish at something I thought I was supposed to be good at. I want to appear smart. I want people to think I'm intelligent. I was the guy who was not happy with an A minus on my report card. It bothered me and it's still a powerful motivator, not only for me but for other people as well and yours might not be grades on a report card. But maybe uh, you've gotten upset when you've been humiliated too and it should be a sign to you that actually you are more afraid of what other people think than you would like to admit. What if submitting to God's will, though, brings you humiliation? What if following Jesus makes you look like a fool? That's a mixed motive. And it's a powerful one. And it keeps a lot of people from living water. I hope that it won't be a barrier for you today. I wanna ask that you'd stand with me, and for a moment, you just close your eyes. Jesus still stands among us, and Jesus still calls out to people, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you're thirsty, if you're spiritually dry, if life feels hollow or disappointing, if you're looking for purpose or meaning, if you're trying to figure out how to connect with God or how to reconnect with God, Jesus is calling to you this morning. Don't let barriers of familiarity or mixed motives or fear get in the way. Come to Him. Surrender your will to His will. Let everything, lay everything down before Him. And if you want to, if you want to please him, but you you don't feel like you're able to please him, bring that to him too. Come with the faith that he has what you need. You're not coming to offer him living water. You're coming to him because he's offered you living water. And the precondition is this. You have to be humble enough to recognize you're thirsty and to accept the offer. That's the real precondition. It's not that you've got to work your way to some moral superiority or say, God, I'm going to work myself up to want to do your will. That's not what Jesus was getting at. He was getting at this simple reality that if you don't want it, you're never going to come to him for it. And as long as you're full of yourself, you'll never recognize your need for God. You're not coming to offer Him something. You're coming to Him because He's offered you something. If you need to come today for salvation, or if you're already a believer and you recognize that your submission to the will of God is not complete as it should be, and you have some mixed motives that have been a barrier as to you to experiencing the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, a, a direct connection with the living God through the, through the Spirit who wants to live in you and direct your life, I want to encourage you that as we sing this song in just a moment, that you'd move from where you are and you would find a place of prayer. I know that that can sound cliche. It can become one of the things that we're familiar with. But I do think that there is something to this. It's that thing about fear we talked about earlier. Fear is often a barrier to people experiencing living water. And so many times we can easily sit and think, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of what my brothers and sisters in Christ will think. I'm afraid that they'll assume that I'm some heathen, I'm some sinner. uh, I'm afraid of, of, of how others will judge me. Today, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of what anyone thinks of you. Christians often go through periods in their lives where they need to examine how they stand before the Lord to test their hearts as the apostle Paul says and to know where they're at. And if today you'd say there's a barrier to the living water, don't don't let the barrier of fear keep you from approaching the Lord. Don't let the barrier of mixed motive keep you from that living water. Come and submit that come to the foot of the cross. It is not I don't think without purpose. That at the end of John's gospel, as he's describing the crucifixion of Jesus, he records an event where Jesus is hanging there. And the soldier takes a spear and thrusts it into Jesus' side. And it says, Out of his side came blood and water. Why does John record that? I think it's because he recognized and he's teaching us that the place to receive living water is is not in ourselves, it's at the foot of the cross. And we have to overcome the fear of what people think, the fear of our mixed motives, and we have to surrender to Jesus at the foot of the cross. As we sing this song, especially the line where it says, I lay down my old flames. If you've got mixed motives, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if there are fears that have kept you from living water, if you just recognize I... I want to draw near the Lord and I wanna I wanna be reconnected with the living water as we sing. Would you come? Step out of your seat, make a place of prayer before the Lord this morning. Even now, as Shana begins, would you come and let's find a place of prayer for just a moment to wait on the Lord
1: in the crushing and in the pressing, you are making new eyes. But all you have given me, Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me.
0: Jesus, we thank you that you are the source of living water. We thank you that you are the one who brings us into relationship with God. And today, we come to you and we thank you that we don't have to come with things figured out or with an offering for you because you are the offering we thank you that as you died on the cross that you became that living water for us and as you ascended to heaven you poured out your spirit that we could have that direct connection with God and today Lord we confess that sometimes our motives are mixed they're not always what they should be They're not always right before you. Sometimes, Lord, our desires are twisted. Sometimes we say and we act as if we want you, but really somewhere in the back of our hearts and minds, we're still striving for something else that we think will satisfy. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us today. Renew our motives. And I pray that the living water of the Holy Spirit will flow in our lives the living water of the Holy Spirit will flow in this church, that we might understand the, the sort of promise that you made of direct access to the presence of God by the Spirit's direction and by his immediate presence in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for the offer. And today we respond by saying, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And Lord, I pray that we would not, that no one of us would allow pride to get in the way of admitting our thirst for you that no one of us would say, I'm not thirsty because I'm already good enough. I'm I'm, I'm not thirsty because I already had a drink and, and I'm good, I'm set. Lord, help us to respond by saying, I'm thirsty for the living water to continue to flow in my life. I'm thirsty for a life of unmixed motive and a pure heart before the Lord. I'm thirsty for a life not hindered by fear of what others think or pride. I'm thirsty for the Spirit to flow in my life again. I love you, Lord. We thank you for these things and we believe you to do them. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. We believe. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're grateful that you were here this morning. If you'd like someone to pray with, we have prayer partners that will be available. We would love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great week. We will see you again on Wednesday when we continue in prayer. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.